Welcome to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. We talk to extraordinary people that you've heard of and extraordinary people that you haven't. We pick their brains about how they get stuff done. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. This week's guest is Amy Kirk, marine biologist, otherwise known as the real Amy Shark. She has the job we all wished we had when we were in year six and went to the aquarium and saw a whale for the first time, except she actually went and did it. Amy is studying a PhD at Charles Darwin Uni and is well on her way to being an expert in Australian black spot sharks and milk sharks. We chat about the hierarchy of coolness in the marine biology world, charismatic megafauna, which is my new favorite phrase, why sharks are so cool, and how Amy is targeting kids to teach them about the importance of ethical fishing practices. You are a marine biologist, and I feel like every kid has this marine biology ambition until they realize it's a little bit more than just swimming with dolphins. What has kept you so obsessed and motivated with the marine sciences? Yes, uh, marine biology is a classic victim of stereotype, I think, and you figure it out very quickly in your first year of uh, university that it's very far removed from dolphins for most of your degree. And it always makes me think of those memes. I don't know if you remember them where it was like, this is what my parents think I do. This is what my friends think I do. This is what my boss thinks I do. And the marine biology one is always like swimming with dolphins and then parents is like getting eaten with sh- by sharks. And then what I actually do is lots and lots of report writing and paperwork and hours in a lab or at a desk doing research. So, um, I think for me, what really got me into marine biology was that I had a natural curiosity for the world around me. So I had a love for science first. I loved science when I was in school. I loved biology when I was in school. And I actually wanted to study vet up until about halfway through um, graduating from high school. And I changed my mind um, at the last minute. I spent a lot of time in my childhood growing up uh, snorkeling, swimming, diving, sailing and being around the water. And I think that nurtured my natural curiosity for the world around me. And when I started my marine science degree, I went in with no expectations of where it would lead me. I didn't go in thinking I was going to swim with dolphins. I know some of my friends did and good on them. They got there, but it's a very small percentage of people that do. And I think I, we did this amazing unit when I was at uni um, called Tropical Marine Biology and we got to travel to Coral Bay and do a field intensive there. So really hands-on in that natural environment and I went swimming with whale sharks when I was there and I instantly became obsessed. I was obsessed with sharks, I was obsessed with um, just the biology of them and I was, I sort of came to the realisation as well, I was like, oh no, I'm going to be a shark person, which is like one <laughs> level down from a dolphin person in competitiveness in marine biology as well. So, but I, I had a roundabout way of getting there. And um, a lot of my process was thinking about what I wanted to do through my degree and setting my goals, setting my short-term goals, setting my long-term goals. 
And that led me to my research career as well, which will hopefully come from my PhD. And I'll just continue to breed that um, natural curiosity. I've got two questions for you from that stuff that you just said. So first of all, can you give us a brief description of what a whale shark actually is? Because I've, I've got nothing. Yes. A whale shark is also a victim of science. Um, it's called a whale shark. It's in fact a shark and not a whale. It's a, it's a fish as sharks are fish. Um, and I think that confuses people to begin with. Whale sharks are the largest fish living in the ocean at the moment. Um, they can be 14 metres long. And they are one of our planktivorous species of sharks. So they're massive and they are the most gentle of all of our sharks. They eat plankton. Oh, lovely. I really like that. Uh, my second question from what you said was um, you said that being a whale person is only one step down from being a dolphin person. Is there like a hierarchy of coolness in marine biology? Um, I think so. And I think it was driven by the early sort of explosion of marine biology in the coolness of your like Jacques Cousteau kind of people that were out there filming and your David Attenborough's, the whales. Um, So, and it's also comes in with like charismatic megafauna. So whales, everyone loves whales. They're cute. They don't hurt you. People want to save them. So there's a, a lot of money that gets funded originally into studying whales because that's where it will come from because you can convince people to save them. And then sharks have become cool recently um, in the last decade or so because we didn't know a lot about them. And I guess um, people thought that attacks were increasing, so we started to fund a bit of research there. And you get those weird people like me that get... Um, really interested by things that they fear, I guess. And I have a healthy uh, respect for sharks in the ocean, of course. I wouldn't unwittingly jump in with a large one. Um, I might think about it more so than the next person, but I still understand that they're an apex predator. Um, and I think we have a really um, – we're really interested in what we fear. So I also am obsessed with, like, serial killers. Oh, my God, me too. <laughs> I love it. I love serial killer podcasts. I love serial killer TV shows, everything. So I think that's why they've sort of become a bit of a cool research area. And there was a lot of funding that went into um, that sort of research from uh, people getting attacked and also from declines in shark populations as well. So it's a very competitive field compared to things like if you want to study climate change, um, because that's also a massive issue right now. So there's lots of jobs for people to study climate change. It's a very political issue at the moment too, whereas sharks is sort of like there's a lot of people that really want to do it because it's really cool, um, but there's less and less going towards that nowadays as well. So, Two things about that segment that you just spoke about. You use the term charismatic megafauna. Is that just a term that you use a lot or is that an actual thing? Uh, it's definitely an actual thing. Um, it's a theory with like trying to get, uh, people in emotionally involved into donation, I guess you think about the symbol for WWF, which is a giant panda WWF obviously funds a huge amount of environmental research in all different corners of the world and you, but them using their giant panda to be like, Hey guys, pandas are dying. Everyone gets really sad about that. It's an emotional thing. They're very beautiful creatures, very cute. They get lots of funds, which they then can allocate to less cool things like endangered snakes and endangered insects that need to be protected, where you can't convince 
people as easily that those things need to be protected. So yeah, the idea of charismatic megafauna, a really good example in Australia is koalas. So everybody loves koalas. Everybody wants to hug a koala. You're going to donate to a koala fund. Um, that's sort of the psychology behind that um, idea. Fantastic. I had no idea that existed and it makes perfect sense now. Thank you for explaining that. Um, secondly, before we move on to the next question, I wanted to recommend something to you if you're into serial killers. There is an amazing, you've probably already seen it if you're into it. There's an amazing show on Stan called Des and it stars David Tennant playing David Nielsen. Des, I haven't. Yeah, it is fantastic. My gift to you. You will love it. You are welcome. <laughs> so moving on to the next question, you started studying a PhD at Charles Darwin Uni in 2018. I'm making a massive assumption here. I'm assuming you're still doing that PhD unless it's the world's shortest PhD. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no? One thing biology and ecology PhDs are not is short. Uh, yes, I'm yeah. technically coming into my last uh, funded year. We'll go with that. Yes, that's what I thought. I was like, 2018, I bet she's still doing that. Uh, so, and you are studying the biology and ecology of the Australian black spot shark and the milk shark caught as bycatch. I purposefully didn't research this because I figured you would so much better to explain it. What exactly is bycatch and how is it a problem? Yeah, so that's a good question. Bycatch is um, a part of pretty much every commercial fishery that we have globally. Um, it's any catch that is not targeted. So anything that you catch that's not targeted by your fishery and is caught incidentally whilst you're trying to catch other species. So um, if you've got something like a trawl net, you're likely to get a lot more bycatch because you're, you can't see what you're catching when you're fishing because it's all underwater and you're dragging your trawl net through the ocean and you catch things um, incidentally and those are our bycatch. Um, so this is an issue because a lot of that bycatch ends up as waste. So it's discarded from the fishery because many fisheries that are managed with plans have particular species you're allowed to catch and how many of those particular species you're allowed to catch. So if that's what you have a plan and a license for, you're not usually allowed to bring other things back to the dock. So they end up getting discarded back into the ocean, dead or alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to um, estimate the amount of mortality from something that goes back into the net, uh, back into the ocean from a net alive as well. We're not sure what the survival rate. They could be quite damaged from the net and go back in alive and then end up dead later from trauma or anything like that. The other um, bad uh, issue with bycatch is um, there's a lot of endangered and threatened species that are vulnerable to fishing that get caught as a bycatch, such as marine turtles so they get caught in trawl nets and marine mammals and we have done quite a good job of developing some devices which deter most of these species these days which is awesome um, there's um, electronic deterrent devices which you can use in bycatch nets that are really effective for turtles um, so that's really good but you still catch them every now and again and then the other issue with bycatch is when it is recorded in a fishery if it is recorded by a fishery, most of it goes unrecorded. But in Australia, we record all our bycatch for our fisheries. Um, usually it's recorded by group. So the species are not broken down into that low taxonomic level of species. It'll be grouped into things such as fish, mollusks, um, or elasmobranchs, which is your sharks and rays. 
Um, and this makes it really difficult for managers to estimate the impact of a fishery on all those different species. So we don't get a holistic understanding of the impact the fishery can potentially be having on the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, that creates a lot of trouble and we get a little bit of unclearness in our management. Um, sharks and rays are particularly vulnerable to the bycatch because of their biology and they're susceptible to overfishing. So they're slow growing, they mature a lot later in their life and they have a lot less um, young than your bony fish. So uh, these guys are a particularly susceptible species as well and we catch a large number of them in our bycatch too. Um, so the best thing we can do is try and utilise it, which is what um, the Food and Agricultural Organization's uh, current report uh, of the United Nations, sorry, current report on our global fisheries has suggested is we really need to start reducing that bycatch. Globally, it can be 10% of our catch. Um, and it can be about, at the moment, we estimate it to be 9 million tonnes of our annual fishing catch. So it's quite a lot. Um, in Australia, our standard is to keep it at 10% or lower um, when we're managing our fisheries, which we do a very good job of. But we, we um, at the moment, we're trying to increase the utilisation of it. So that's what the Northern Territory is trying to do, is we turn it from a bycatch into what we call a byproduct. So it doesn't get wasted. Yeah. And so when you have species breakdown of your bycatch, you can do, then do species-specific biological research, or in some cases you can use similar species biological research to write a management plan based on the biology of that species and then use it and sell it as a byproduct because you can set quotas and numbers and estimate the impact of the fishery. That sounds amazing. It's unbelievable how you can actually figure out exactly what it is that is in your bycatch and then target that particular area of bycatch. And then that's the way to solve that problem. That is fascinating. See, I'm not much of a science person. So, you know, I love hearing the breakdown of, of that. Uh, so you said earlier that with your charismatic megafauna, which is just my new favorite phrase, you didn't necessarily include sharks in that, but you did acknowledge that sharks have uh, they're sort of having a bit of a heyday at the moment and a lot of people are thinking that they're very cool. I've certainly noticed that. I feel very, like, I think sharks are cool, but I've never kind of had a shark moment, but I have noticed that sharks are much more of a thing recently. Can you tell us why you think everyone else thinks that sharks are so cool and what are your three coolest facts about sharks? The weirder, the better. Oh, man, I've got so many cool facts about sharks. <laughs> I bet you do. Um, I, I think it's, so from, I think, the fear thing, like I said earlier, we fear them and they're very misunderstood. Um, and I think people still think they're misunderstood, even though there's been quite a lot of scientific research into at least the more popular species or the species that are caught commercially in fisheries because um, there's a lot of money that goes into the fisheries, so yet um, more funding for research into those species. Um, so we associate them with unknown and they're mysterious so that makes them cool you know um and we know we associate that because only five percent of our ocean has been explored so it is a hugely vast unknown thing just out there um and they get a lot of hype from the media um i think we're a little bit obsessed with destruction as humans you know no news is good news which means bad news is going to be the news so they're in the news a lot, which as you talk about them more, people get more interested. It's more a, conversa a conversation you might be having over a cup of tea. Um, 
their big shark that was spotted off the coast the other day while everyone was fishing, that sort of thing. Um, and also I think they are just really, really cool. They're really, <laughs> they're a um, hugely diverse group of animals. There's 500 extant species roughly. And they go from like a sawfish in the Northern Territory, which is a big ray that can grow to seven meters long and has the really long nose with all the spikes off it to, you know, a great white shark or a blue shark. They're just such different creatures, but they're all in that big group together of elasmobranchs of your sharks and rays. Um, when I go and talk to year five classes or primary school classes, I'm, I introduce myself and I say, hey, I'm Amy. I'm from CDU and I'm a shark scientist. And the reaction is just like, oh my God. <laughs> conversation she's a shark scientist so love cool. that. you can do that and I'm just sitting there like oh, yeah that made my day this is great this is the best reaction I've ever got from a crowd <laughs> um they have a like a really old lineage in evolutionary history like their group diverged 420 million years ago from bony fish so they've been around for so long and they inhabit every single ocean in our world and I think because they diverged so long ago, they've um, diversified into all their different body forms and they've got all these amazing adaptations so that they can survive in the ocean and have survived for so long. So I think that's definitely the main reasons why I think they're really cool. Um, my first shark fact, I think I'll dive right in with a real juicy one because I love this one. So um, when they're mating, as we know in the wild, not usually a consensual thing, uh, the male will bite onto the female to hold onto her during mating and she will end up with um, visible bite marks. So you can see them in sharks that you catch. You can see, we call them mating scars, visible bite marks on her body. And then when he gets his uh, male reproductive organ is called a clasper. So it's a bipenal. It's got two appendages. Yeah. When he manages to get that into um, her cloaca, which is the sharks have a single opening, so that's called a cloaca for all the things that go on there. Um, it His claspers open up into barbs and hooks um, and they hook into her overduct so he can't pull it, they, she, sorry, can't pull it back out. Oh my gosh. That's, I'm, I am visibly horrified. Um, wow. So it, does the, the mating, what did you call them? Mating scars? Does that mean that once she has those scars, no one else wants to mate with her or do they just add to them? Oh no. Yeah. They just add to them. Male sharks, oh, they, if they can find a female, they will have her. If they can. Oh, her. far out. Yeah. They, it's, there's, yeah, no love in the ocean, unfortunately. Oh, that sounds so painful. Thank you. That was a fabulous fact. Excellent. What's what's your number two? I'm keen. Um, so still on the trail of reproduction because it breeds all the best facts. Um, if the female sharks are away, uh, away from male sharks for a long period of time, they can actually uh, reproduce without them, which is a phenomenon known as parthenogenesis. And they didn't think that it could be done in vertebrae, but um, there's been a couple of vertebrae where it has been now. And it's been seen, yeah, so it's, they call it virgin birth. So without fertilization from a male, um, seen in zebra sharks, black tip sharks and bonnethead, hammerhead sharks. Yeah. That's amazing. So what, do, do you know of other animals where that is more common just for comparison? Uh, invertebrates, for sure. Okay. There's heaps. I, from memory, 
my example when I was in university was a water flea. So there's a few invertebrates that would do it. Um, that means no backbone, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So uh, like bugs, crabs, um, worms, and then your vertebrates start with fish and then all uh, tetrapods, which is, yeah, birds, mammals, reptiles, that sort of thing. Cool. Wow. Amazing. And your third one? Oh, my third fact. So this one is a bit of a secret biology and chemistry lesson, which uh, my advice to anybody marine biologists out there as well, I didn't mention this before, but there's a lot of secret chemistry in biology. You've got to be ready, and marine biology particularly, you've got to be ready for it, um, and a lot of secret stats. So you really do need to be committed to more than just the dolphins. Um, but sharks have a really interesting way of maintaining water in their environment. So what goes on in our body is this thing called osmoregulation, which is how we maintain our water balance. And osmosis is the movement of water from um, a high gradient to a low water gradient. So it goes with gravity per se. And um, so there's a higher concentration of dissolved solutes outside of our cells. So water wants to move out. And we want to keep the water in our cells because it's obviously the base of life and we need it for all cell reactions in our body. Chemistry biology lesson over. <laughs> so sharks um, are isotonic within the water, which means they keep the same water balance. They're osmoconformers. So they have the same concentration inside of them as they do in a salt water outside of them, which actually has a quite a high concentration of solutes. So to do this, they retain uh, urea and trimethylamine in their blood and in their bodies. So they retain their urea waste pretty much in their bloodstream. Yeah. So that they can maintain that same osmotic balance inside of their cells as is outside. Most organisms are osmoregulators, so they have different adaptations to maintaining a lower concentration inside of their body to the outside environment. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I always feel like the word osmosis has changed to just mean transformation. I feel like it's a very misused word these days. So I really appreciate you explaining what osmosis actually means. I'm like, that is not how I've been using that word. So thank you very much for that. Uh, you have developed a pilot outreach program called the Science Totally Roadshow, which is a simulated fishing game that teaches kids about sustainable fishing. And this year you won the Northern Territory Rural Women's Award, which gives you $10,000 towards developing it and rolling it out. Can can you tell us in a nutshell what you want to teach through this program and how our listeners can make changes to facilitate the thing that you're trying to do? Yeah, so obviously this is an outreach program. So the main objective is to increase science outreach in rural communities and schools in the Northern Territory. Um, I've actually developed Science Totally, which is a fishing game, and I've also written um, a book which was only printed... So I got a grant from National Science Week to print copies of a story that I wrote called The Sensible Sawfish, which is also about um, sustainability, sustainable fishing and sharing resources in our communities. And that was illustrated by students from schools in Darwin and the greater Darwin region. And that has been printed to be sent to community schools. So that was a COVID-friendly science, National Science Week activity that I could do for uh, rural communities in the Northern Territory. Um, and I plan to keep handing that out 
as I go along and visit new communities through my Science Totally program, which is my uh, simulated fishing game, which is called Let's Go Fishing. Um, and I developed with this with a colleague of mine. Um, it's adapted by a program that Blue Ventures run, and they teach uh, sustainable fishing practices to communities in um, Timor, Timor-Leste. Um, and it's a hands-on game. So it simulates fishing and you fish physically with your hands from uh, an ecosystem, uh, a set-up ecosystem. And it shows, uh, helps to educate students about sustainable practices, particularly in the context of fisheries and ecosystems. So we want to introduce students to um, ecosystem life cycles through fishing, explain how fishing can affect a whole ecosystem, understand our impact on an ecosystem through fishing and how we can manage that impact, how management works in different situations and how management can change, um, and how research can influence management and help us manage fisheries. And it also aims to share knowledge about fishing outcomes between communities. So I hope to gain knowledge from visiting communities about all the things that they do in their communities, all the fish that they catch and all the activities that they do. And I hope just to share my knowledge as someone who studies fishery science with them. Fantastic. So with all of the stuff that you do, uh, this podcast is mainly about habits and about um, inspiring people to create better habits and we want to be learning from the people that I have on the show. So how do your habits help you in your day-to-day life? What's your morning routine like? Like are there systems that you use every day? Is there any weird habit that you have? Like you have to, I don't know, cover yourself in Vaseline or something before entering a shark tank. Like I made that up, but you get the picture. Yes. I, funny that you make that up because I do cover myself in Vaseline when I go in the ocean for an an open water swim. Yes, (laughs) but it's not for sharks. It's for a different uh, terrifying sea creature. Um, It can help lessen the effects of jellyfish stings. Oh, so I probably didn't make that up. I probably heard it somewhere and just applied it to this situation. (laughs) Definitely. Any any endurance open water swim as well. It also keeps you warm. So it helps you um, not get hypothermia if you're doing a swim in a colder environment. Um, We're all greased up sunscreened up on the beach ready to go covered in vaseline and sometimes uh lard or sheep lard it's great time slippery slippery great time (laughs) um but i guess my routine uh uh i i'm one of those people who gets told they do too much um so i've always taken that as i have really good time management which i think (laughs) I manage to fit everything in most of the time. Um, I'm really good at scheduling my day to week to month to like hour blocks to make sure everything's in. Um, I remember doing this with my friend and people laughing at us because we had these two events on the same day. Our university ball was on the same day as the AFL grand final that our team was playing in. And we had to get ready for the ball in the morning, go and watch the football ball makeup up because we wouldn't have time to make up after the football and then get dressed in half an hour and go to the ball and we did it and it worked very smooth but we love it a running sheet of how long we we're allowed to spend on each of our activities like hair makeup having a champagne before we went all of that um so I think yeah I'm a planner 
I'm an organizer and I have good time management, which I think has always helped me. And I think that comes from my morning routine when I was a kid. So I grew up swimming squad. Um, my morning routine is still, I still get up early and I exercise every morning. That's my morning routine. Unless I've um, burnt both ends of the candle or something like that, which happens every now and again, or I'm sick. Um, I'm out of bed in the morning exercising. And I did that for squad at least three times a week when I was um, in school and we'd come home and then we'd go off to school. Um, I did have a bit of a hiatus when I was at the end of school and then I started university. But I think really old habits die hard. I started working when I was at uni and I met some friends and we decided we were going to get into open water swimming. And all of a sudden that morning routine was just straight back in, get up, exercise, uh, get ready and get on with your... So it's open water swimming that you do every morning? Uh, no, in Darwin I don't open water swim. No way. <laughs> Sorry, that was probably a really stupid question. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. In Perth it would be both, so pool and open water swimming, uh, a lot of open water swimming competition. I say you can't open water swim in Darwin. You can't train for sure. Most of the year we have crocodiles and if not crocodiles, you've got uh, irigangi, so box jellyfish. Oh. Yeah, your most deadly. Irigangi is a genus of jellyfish that contains the most jellyfish, most deadly jellyfish in the world. Um, yeah, and we got those tropical Australia come up here. Uh, oh gosh, yeah, no, none of that, thanks. <laughs> um, so all of the swimming that I do in Darwin is either in a pool or in um, a man-made lake and a man-made uh, ocean inlet. So there's a boarded ocean inlet we've got in our city. And we do our open water swim series there and you just swim laps of the ocean inlet. So one of my friends did a 10 k as 12, 800 meter laps. Wow. Yeah. So it's good fun, but yeah, I, I travel to open water swim now. I did a lot of it when I was back in WA, um, but yeah, it's good. It's still great. I miss it. Fantastic. Uh, so this is the last question. Being a woman in STEM and studying a PhD, I imagine you've got some next level discipline. Um, I loved your tip about uh, the run sheet that just spoke to me. Do you have any tips or tricks or strategies you use for staying focused? Because I can imagine that writing reports on the fisheries and uh, I, I imagine that kind of stuff can get quite dry. Do you have any tips for remaining focused when you're not doing something super cool with sharks yeah run sheets to-do lists I but I'm like everyone else I think my I get scattered as I get distracted so I need that that to-do list draws me back and make sure I have focus even though if I've got like three going with half of each ticked off I have to write mine out because I feel like it helps me the muscle memory helps me solidify as a thing that I need to do in my brain um I, I think through uh, swimming and sports, I did maintain a lot of discipline. Um, so I'm quite disciplined in how I go about my life and I use that. That keeps me very focused because I pride myself in my work and I want to produce good work. I take a lot of pride in what I do. So that definitely lends to focus, especially on long-term projects, which like a PhD, it's definitely challenged me because it's, you know, you do something at the start and you do what's called a confirmation of candidature where you have to present your idea and they say, tick, yep, here's three years, off you go, submit a thesis at the end. 
and there's not so much in between a little bit of annual reporting but you know there's no like you know in six months you have to produce a paper in the next six months you have to be finished your lab work um it's very much up to your own to um device and yeah I've been trying to come to terms with that a lot and find a lot of new ways to keep that focus and discipline um I found that setting small achievable goals along with my long-term goals helps me a lot um I do a lot of visualizing of what I want my future to look like I'm a bit of a five-year planner so whether my five-year plan changes in that five years I'm very open I'm loosey-goosey but I like having an idea of where I'm going and knowing what I'm going to look like at the end, I think. Um, and making sure you take regular breaks. There's a, a writing technique that we're doing at the moment at uni, which is um, you write for a short amount of time and then you take a really short break and you do cycles of that and you take a longer break. Um, and that's just a way to be really focused for that short amount of time. And even if you're there and you're like, oh, this is so boring, and then you look at the clock and you're like, oh, I've only got five minutes left and I'm going to get a five-minute social media break or a five-minute tea break or whatever. That's really helped me at the moment. So, um, yeah, I guess that stems with not putting so much pressure on yourself to always get it done, get it done on time, give yourself that break and make sure that, you know, tomorrow's a new day, you're going to be more productive that day. Don't think about the day before, leave it in the wind and go forward with what you're doing for the next day. So, yeah. That's perfect. Thank you so much. And that's such an excellent sentiment to wrap up on. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been so fascinating. And I, I still can't get over charismatic megafauna. I'm going to be, that's, that's really, that's been my main takeaway from this. I'm like, Ooh, there's like fancier animals that are like doing all the work for all the other animals. I'm like, this concept has just blown my mind. Uh, and also all of the amazing shark facts. This has been such a fantastic episode. Thank you so much. Oh, no worries. I have a bonus shark fact if you want it actually. Oh, please. So if you turn sharks upside down, <laughs> yes, <laughs> what's called tonic immobility. So it's like an inactivity period, usually for short, uh, short term sharks. So they're like, it's kind of like a catatonic state. They're like asleep, but not asleep. And um, researchers don't know why they do this. They think maybe you disorientate them by turning them upside down. Like sharks are never upside down unless they're... So they don't swim upside down. They don't swim upside down. They would never swim upside down. So maybe they're disorientated and they're just like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? Um, but yeah, it's really helpful to researchers, especially if you're handling small sharks or in aquariums. You can, if you can put them in tonic immobility, much easier to take measurements of them and stuff like that. So they're not thrashing around. Wow. Actually, while I've got you here, if you were going to get attacked by a shark, what's the best thing to do? Oh, I get this question a lot. <laughs> I would punch the nose or poke the eye because... Or turn them upside down if they're small enough. You, you know, don't know if you get a great white upside down. They're pretty <laughs> creatures. If it's Give it a red hot go though. <laughs> small one and it's biting you, definitely grab its pectoral, um, pectoral fins and turn it upside down. Um, but I would, uh, shark has a lot of senses on its face and its head. So I think that's why punching the nose or poking the eye hurts. The nose is way more sensitive than like human noses and dog noses. They have a lot, they've really, they've got a lot of layers in their uh, nasal column because they smell quite well. Um, so that, and that will at least either spook it because it's expecting you to be a seal probably or something else that it usually eats, another large marine mammal. Um, 
So that would either disorientate it for a little bit. It might then get mad and come back, but it gives you a bit of time to get away. And in, in most cases, they won't because, you know, I think in Australia for people, and not to disrespect anyone who's been attacked by a shark or has a family member who's been killed by a shark because it would be a very horrible thing, I can imagine. Um, but I think maybe four people a year in Australia die from a shark attack compared to many, many, many other things. And, um, yeah, we're going into their environment. So if you're in that situation, definitely defend yourself and get out of there. But, yeah. Don't stress too much about it because it's very unlikely. Oh, 100%. 100%. Don't, don't involve yourself in high-risk behaviours like surfing and spearfishing. Those sorts of things tend to attract more sharks than others. If you're just swimming at the beach in waist-high water, you'll be totally fine. And that was Amy Kirk, the shark expert. I loved chatting to Amy. There's just something so uplifting about hanging out with someone who's just so consumed by what they do. And watching her light up, telling me her favorite shark facts just absolutely made my day. I was on a high for the rest of the day after interviewing her. And I just loved learning about charismatic megafauna too. It's just such an interesting look into wildlife fundraising and how the more appealing animals are the ones that get the most attention. I thought it drew a fairly interesting parallel with human life, don't you think? My favorite productivity tips from Amy that I took away was it's okay to be busy if that's what works for you. Amy is such a busy person who does so many different things and I really liked how unapologetic she was about how she likes being busy and being busy works for her. So if being busy works for you, go for it. She also said that planning is essential, another tip I love. I also really liked how she talked about old habits and how they die hard. So when she was a child and was going through squad swimming, it, it's a very disciplined thing to do to get up at you know 4 or 5 a.m. every morning to swim, particularly when you're a teenager. And I like how she drew the parallel that that's what it was that got her to be so disciplined as an adult. Her tip for writing everything down to solidify what she needs to do that day is unsurprisingly another tip that I absolutely love. I hope you got as much out of the episode as I did. Coming up next week on the show is... Kate Sobrano. Yes, the Kate Sobrano. So please be pre-warned. I gushed quite a lot in that episode. It was one of the thrills of my career. Tune in next week to listen to me interviewing Kate Sobrano. Thank you for listening to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at carlyjacobs.com. That's carlyjacobs, D-O-T-C-O-M. You can also email me productivity at carlyjacobs.com. I actually really, really love hearing from listeners. So seriously, don't be shy. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash productivity. This season's book club pick is Live What You Love by entrepreneur Naomi Simpson. And we have Naomi on the show later in the season to answer all your questions about the book. You can purchase the book at Naomi Simpson, S-I-M-S-O-N.com and use the code productivity10 for a 10% discount. You have until the end of November, 2020 to read the book and get your questions in. So get reading. 
Also, if you love the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Even $5 a month would be a huge help in covering production, editing, equipment, promotion, and guest wrangling. Just visit patreon.com forward slash productivity. Oh, and one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life.